0: shaped by these people, shaped by my experiences, shaped by my cultural background. My sexuality has given me perspective that I think a younger self probably would have regretted. My name is Chris Kwong. I am a son of a refugee and a fifth generation born Chinese-Australian. I'm also the head of government engagement and strategic initiatives at Australian Red Cross. In some respects, I feel like I've got more to lose because I know the investment that has been made For me to be here, my uncle, her eldest brother, was working in the U.S. Navy at the time when uh, the vehicle took over Vienna. Being a person that was working with the U.S. Navy, they were actually tipped off early. It was an opportunity for him and his family, including my mum, to to leave. And she talks about, you know, some pretty scary things where in the middle of the night, you know, you'd stop the boat. Um, In the middle of the ocean, you're not sure where you are. It's just the moonlight that you have. Often she said you'd hear noises that night of a splash that meant someone had fallen overboard.
1: Within your answers you also said you have a partner and I realised that you are a member of the LGBTQIA plus community.
0: There was nothing else to say other than I'm gay.
1: So let's not keep you waiting any longer and turn through the pages of this open diary. I hope you are listening. Chris. Ali. Who is Chris?
0: Who is Chris? Oh, my gosh. Um, look, I am proudly a fifth-generation born Australian-Chinese or Chinese-Australian. I alternate between the two. Yeah. Um, I am um, as son of a refugee so mum came here um, to Australia following the Vietnam War. On the dad's side of the family we that's where the fifth generation comes from um, and I am very happily with my partner Slade um, and uh, he and I have been together now for gosh I reckon nearly eight to nine years coming um to, in March so in terms of who I am I'm shaped by these people um shaped by my experiences shaped by I suppose this um my cultural background um my sexuality has given me perspective that I think a younger self probably would have regretted to be frank um you you, you wished to be otherwise to be part of the main um, but as you get older and as I find myself, I realise actually the, hopefully the qualities that I bring to uh, my relationships, to my work, to what I do is, I think, largely rooted in um, partly um, my background and who I who, what, makes me, what makes me, me, um, essentially. Yeah.
1: There is so much to unpack there. Um, but I want to I want to start by um, the fact you mentioned your your mom is a refugee. How I'm sure you had the opportunity to sit down and talk to her about her experiences as a refugee. Um, how does that? So um, a better way of saying it is how does that impact your perspective about life?
0: Mm-hmm. It puts into perspective that you can't choose where you're born. There's many things in life you can choose, and I'm a strong believer of that. Um, But that is certainly at least one clear thing you cannot choose. Um, And that puts into, for me, a whole lot of perspective, because in many ways, my experience, my upbringing, my opportunity to be born in the relative safety of Australia is like a one eighty degree shift from what my mum was born into, um, and it makes you extremely grateful, I think, for what you have, um, and I think that changes perspectives in a number of ways. And I think a, a, a good example is actually the the other day I was going for a run with a mate of mine, and we got talking about a whole range of things, and for some reason or another. Um, We're reflecting around school Um, and um, I was asked you know during school was I pressured in any way to go down the particular path that I've gone down in terms of you know my studies and what have you and and my career and I said no Um, you know my parents were very good in that regard there was no direct uh, request for me to be a lawyer or be a doctor but there was a sense that I knew that that was something I should be aiming for. Um, and it relates to your point because um, when we got talking and what I sort of used as a bit of an example is that when I think back to school, you know, you rock up on a Monday morning, you know, the usual thing and and school well hasn't started yet, but you're all rocking up into class and you, can, you know that the conversation's always around what did you do on the weekend? And uh, all of my mates... Um, I, I went to a pretty Anglo-dominated school. And all my mates talked about, you know, uh, we went to, to Manum, you know, uh, by the, the Murray River and went kneeboarding uh, or we went and did, um, you know, went to the zoo um, or we went shopping and I bought, got, got this fantastic new transformer or what have you. My story was always consistently we went to the Chinese restaurant that my parents owned and ran and uh, I worked and helped out on Saturday, did some study. And, um, yeah, that's what I got up to. And then the next question would be, well, what did you do on Sunday? And I said, well, the same thing, only slightly different. We went to the markets because we had to buy some things for for the restaurant. Um, but I point that out because it, it, without knowing, I think that's where you realise the change in perspective on life um, because you have a, a start that's different to others. Um, but but then you're also connected by the same desire to achieve, right, to to aim for better. It's just that your race is slightly longer perhaps to get to the end destination. So that's a bit of a roundabout way, but I think that's really shaped a lot of things in life for me.
2: Do you think your desire is maybe somewhat stronger as a result of that experience or not necessarily?
0: I wouldn't put it in terms of stronger. What I would put is I do feel, if I'm being really honest, um, I feel like I've got more to lose in this than maybe someone who um, has had a family that has been here, that has always had that relative safety, has always enjoyed, you know, the the, the third or fourth generation that's gone to university, for example. In some respects, I feel like I've got more to lose because um, I know the investment that has been made for me to be here and for me to have grown up here uh, in Australia. And so if I don't um, achieve, then I feel like there's a lot more that's lost because it's not just my investment, but it's the investment that my parents have made as well.
1: This is actually a question that I ask myself often. How do you keep that perspective in front of mind so you don't forget about it? Because I think the pressures of life, the work and everything else that happens, um, I tend to personally forget. I had a very similar um, background to you, Chris. And I have to constantly remind myself of where I've come from and, and the sacrifices that were made for me to be where I am today. So I'm really keen to understand how you do that.
0: Uh, I'm really lucky at the moment because I work for Australian Red Cross. (laughs) Um, That's the short answer. Um, So I have a regular reminder through the work that I do, um, whether it's, you know, how we're assisting refugees, asylum seekers, other um, migrants in transition who are on, you know, insecure visas, Um, from falling through the gaps, providing them emergency relief, hearing the stories of hope, Uh, when we reunite families that have not seen each other for many, many years, right through to, you know, how we help with First Nations communities uh, or even during disasters and and responding uh, to help people like they are through the floods. So that's a regular reminder. But um, to take your point, though, you know, outside of work or even indeed, you know, before I started working for Red Cross, how do, I, how do I have those regular reminders? I was also a volunteer for over 10 years uh, with Red Cross, um, but also continue to volunteer on a board for the Australian Refugee um, Association in South, based in South Australia. Um, so I look for those opportunities um, to keep me grounded. Um, they're probably the, the key things that I would look for. Um, and over time it it ends up driving you, uh, uh, driving in me a real sense of, you know, what is it that I want to actually do? And so for me, um, you know, I went through the journey of going through law school, being very clear throughout law school, probably partly because you, you are bombarded with the marketing of major firms, particularly commercial firms that um, success in law school is to land a graduate role um, at one of those major law firms. And I I certainly went down that path and and fell into that, um, what I would call illusion really of of success being measured purely based on that. Um, Not to say that there isn't um, success in doing that. Um, And I was fortunate because I was punctuated, my, my career early on was punctuated with different opportunities. So I worked for a, a judge which let me to reflect, gave me a year to reflect on where I really wanted to go. Um, So what I'd say is that um, it gave me those sorts of opportunities to then go a little bit more deeper around actually what am I measuring my success by um, and starting to be comfortable to ground myself in things that will continue to reorient me back to that perspective that we're talking about um, and I, I feel extremely privileged to be able to
2: do that now for, for my work. I think a lot of people mix up migrants and refugees. I would love to hear your take on this considering you've actually worked very closely, volunteered you know with refugees and probably migrants as well along the way Spider Red Cross.
0: So um, for me you know Refugee, it's a legal term, right? Well, in my perspective, it, it is defined legally in terms of someone who is fleeing uh, persecution. That is probably the defining factor of, of, between a migrant and, and a refugee. Now, it doesn't mean that a migrant isn't necessarily fleeing for reasons of um, hardship. but persecution is, is a, a direct threat to someone's life. So for me, um, that is the huge difference in terms of Mum's story. For example, you know, she she was eighteen when she came to Australia, um, and she's told me the stories in which. Um, so for for Mum and Mum's story, she is a uh, the youngest in her siblings among uh, would it be what four four siblings? So she had two older sisters and an elder brother. Um, Oldest, her eldest brother, uh, was working in the U.S. Navy at the time when uh, the Viet Cong uh, took over um, Vietnam, effectively the, the, the fall of Vietnam to the Viet Cong. And so naturally, being uh, a person that was working with the U.S. Navy, um, they were actually tipped off early uh, before the fall of Saigon, and they were in Saigon at the time, that um, that the war was lost um and that there would be the Americans would be backing out. And that because my uncle had served with the Navy, that there was an opportunity for him and his family, including my mum, to to leave. Um, and it was a very difficult choice for my grandparents at the time who have now passed away, uh, because for them home was Vietnam. Um, and the concept of leaving home, despite knowing that your life was at threat, Uh, is a really hard thing to grapple. And, I mean, look, you know, I would never be able to understand that. Um, But If I was thinking of the Australian context, if we put ourselves, if we closed our eyes and just imagine, you know, quite literally um, being told that where you have called home, where you thought you would grow old is no longer safe and you need to leave and you need to leave immediately, it's not an easy decision. And so... um, what happened was um, the family decided um, that some or well, some decided to, to go, others wanted to stay. Um, as a result, um, there was a bit of toing and froing about what to actually do. Um, and at a point, um, it was decided that my uncle would go and um, my mum being 18 at the time being the youngest would go with him and his family. Um, and, mum's uh, eldest sister uh, was married at the time so she ended up deciding to stick with her uh, husband and their family um, and that left my mum's second eldest sister um, who was not partnered with anyone to stay back with uh, my grandma at the time um, so that was the plan and that, that would see things out because no one really knew what would actually happen Um, and so that was the decided plan. Now, it was extremely hard to actually escape, Vietnam, as you would imagine, uh, when, when things turned the way that they did. And so, um, mum talked about the number of times that they actually sought to escape, um, in the dead of night, because that was the only time you could really do this. and I think it's really important for people to understand that context and what that actually meant. So you would have to flee in a way that wasn't obvious that you were fleeing. So that meant leaving a lot of your belongings behind, um, taking the bare essentials, um, and they had at the time, cause mum was with my uncle and his family, There were, um, my two at the time, anyway, my two cousins. One uh, she was only a couple of months old and the other a little bit older. Um and so mum looked after um Michelle, the, the slightly older child. I think she was only a couple of years old, um, because she was quite attached to mum and, and saw mum as kind of like the second mum, if you would. Um and so um they really had to leave everything behind, take bare minimum food. But the most critical thing I think to highlight, because this is often comes up in a bit of conversations uh, among particularly Aussies uh, of, you know, this concept around illegal refugees, there is no such thing as an illegal refugee. Um, But often what is painted around that is around, well, where's the documentation to prove, you know, uh, that you are a refugee, that you've come from where you say you come from, um, and quite often refugees don't have documentation. And the reason being is partly from stories. If you get caught and you uh, have documentation on you, then clearly uh, you're trying to escape. Um, and what also means is that you're able to be identified. Um, and if you are able to be identified, it puts your other family members in danger. And so it was common practice to get rid of your ID because um, that was the safest route for you um, so yeah so there was a number of attempts made um, and I, I can't remember exactly how many attempts it was but it was certainly more than three uh, that they eventually were able to to find a boat um, and uh, set sail and you know it's that in the middle of the night you're trusting yourself with total strangers um, you had to pay them um, and the only thing that they would accept was pretty much gold So any uh, family jewellery, any heirlooms, any memories that were attached to that, you had to give that up Um, and trust your life with a total stranger uh, on a boat that was, you know, taking dozens of people um, on a very small boat, heading off to a destination that was unknown. Um, You were told that you'd be taken somewhere safe, but you don't really know where you were going. And she spent around three nights on that boat squatting she tells me of you know just the uh, unimaginable really when you think about my mum because if you met met my mum she's the classic asian lady right tiny little asian lady (laughs) uh with petite build and you think geez how could you squat on a boat and look after your niece of a few years old um, at age of 18 and and just hang on for dear life. And she talks about, you know, some pretty scary things where in the middle of the night, you know, you'd stop the boat. Um, in the middle of the ocean, you're not sure where you are. It's just the moonlight that you have. Um, and um, often, she said, you'd hear noises at night of a splash just out of the blue. And that meant someone had fallen overboard. And that's it. You know, that person was gone. Everyone was too afraid to do anything else. And it was just pure survival. Um, And I think how how do you get through that? Um, And also, um, you know, with limited supply, they had limited supply of fresh water. Um, Mum used to talk about how, um, you know, particularly um, the niece who, you know, as a kid, you'd be super thirsty, right? so um, what they had was fresh water attached to a hose and that was part the hose was passed around like a garden hose passed around to to everyone and someone would be at the end of that hose controlling and rationing how much water everyone had and basically you take a sip and they'll you know bend the hose and that's it pass it on to the next person Um, so you did your absolute best uh, to support one another to get through it even though you didn't really have anything Um, the slightly funny side if i might share is is um so the youngest niece my cousin um Danielle um is is the shortest and smallest in the family she was only a baby during that period and we always make jokes about the fact that that was because um at the time they had to flee Vietnam she all um my auntie was because of the malnutrition wasn't really producing enough milk to to feed her and so they had barley sugar which they used to uh, just sort of melt on their finger tip and just let her suck on that and get sustenance from the sugar. Um, so I, we think that that's probably why she's so stunted in that. Um, but yeah, it's just interesting, uh, you know, in terms of that kind of story to say, well, that to me is just my example, my, my family's example. It's not an uncommon story, unfortunately. Um, but that to me is the the difference between a migrant and a refugee um, is it boils down to choice and there is no choice Um, or if there is any, it's whether you want to choose to live or die, quite frankly
1: What a way to explain that question Quick one, can you please take a second and follow us on any platform you're listening from It will help more than you know, thank you how is your mum?
0: She's good. You know, she's 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 extremely stoic. Um, she uh, is religious in terms of uh, Buddhism, but not religious in the sense of you know overbearing really religious. But you can see that it's a you know for me anyway. My interpretation of it is um, I'm not as I mean, I believe in Buddhism. Um, I'm probably not as much of a practicing Buddhist as as I probably should be. Um, but Mum does it every day, and I think that is uh, her way of giving thanks because she quite frankly feels like she's you know won the lotto at life. Um, you know, she's got um, my brother who is a police officer. Um, and uh, I went on, and as I mentioned, studied law. I practiced in law. I went into a bit of politics uh, and working in policy in the public service. Uh, and I'm now fortunate um, to have a, a leadership role at Australian Red Cross, which I feel like I'm kind of giving back to because you know Mum's journey to Australia uh, was met with Red Cross along the way um, in the refugee camps and and giving her support there and giving her support when she was in Adelaide uh, to to settle. Um, So in some ways, I think she's really grateful for all of that um, because it's nothing that you could imagine as an 18-year-old living in Saigon at the time, uh, that that could be even possible when you didn't finish high school, um, let alone have finished even English school. She taught herself along the way. yeah, so I think that that's you know she's she's well, Ali. So thank you for asking, um, because I think where we're at now compared to where she thought things may have been, um, yeah, she's well.
1: I can't imagine. I can't imagine how fulfilling it may feel for you to give back through an organization that once helped your mum.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a huge privilege. Um, I often get told, uh, and it's true, I I get really absorbed with my work, Um, whether it's working with Red Cross or not. I think it's always been just part of who I am or 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 how I work. Um, But it is such a privilege to do it at Red Cross. Um... It certainly feels more than work. Um, and indeed, you know, don't get me wrong, there are days just like there's any days with any job, but um, particularly with where I am at right now, they are far and in between. Um, When you see what's happening, you know, even as recent now, which aren't on our headlines in Australia as much as it maybe potentially should be, uh, the recent floods in Pakistan uh, or the continued... Deterioration in North Syria, which, you know, um, isn't the front of mind of many Australians. To know that what I'm doing, whether it's directly or indirectly, able to support the Red Cross movement around addressing those humanitarian needs, um, it's thought, it's, it's, yeah, I kind of go, well, what else could I, what more could I ask for um, at this point in time? So, yeah. Yeah, so maybe a little less. Less of the praying uh, for me and more for the
2: doing that is my way of of saying thanks. Well, I think the other way is obviously your commitment to public service. Um, And my first, you know, gut feel is, um, you know, in a way hearing your mum's story, I was pretty... Pretty emotional for me to hear, to be honest. I was really trying to keep my tears intact because, you know, I'm Lebanese and got um, Syrian family members and Ali right here with us. um, That's another story. And I I could see Ali keeping his tears intact. Um, And it just made me realise, like, it's not just your mum who's been extremely grateful and practising, you know, religion and, you know being a proper Buddhist, maybe you're not, yes, day to day, but I think the level of gratitude you obviously carry and you somewhat give back to this community on a scale that I don't think most people can even fathom. Um, not just you know, I feel like maybe it was your choice to do law and to seek justice, but then also working with you know department of premier and cabinet and trying to you know bring in world peace by trying politics and then you kind of went to like oh okay not for a profit and i just see a pattern in your career like you've really committed to this cause am i right or am i completely off (laughs) Uh, look it's it's very kind
0: of you um very very kind of you um I wouldn't say you're off. I just never had a sort of, you know, when someone says that to you, you kind of go, well, I just get on and do it. Um, it, I don't, you know, it's a great opportunity to be talking through this and being able to reflect on it. But I don't really think about it um, in in this way. Um, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. you know, not to get too morbid about it, but you, you, we're all here for a finite time. And for me, the the importance of making a difference, making a positive difference um, is not about me, it's about a contribution that we can all make. Uh, because what I experienced today, just like it's a story on, you know, whether it's my mum or even more broadly, it's built on those that have come before you who have also made their contribution. And what we do collectively today is our contribution for those that come after us and so on. And I think that when when you look at it that way, which is how I sort of see it, um, then you realise, well, what's for me anyway? Well, of course I'll do this. Do you know, does that make sense? Because um, it's not about us today. It's actually about those that come after us um, and the world we live in, which is also finite, and, and that's being more and more um, present in our mind that we not only have to look after um society, we actually also need to look after the world in which we live in, um, because there's this interrelationship which we rely on. Um, And so, yeah, when you start to put all those things in context, and I think, particularly in this modern day and age, you cannot, I think, ignore that, given the amount of access to information that we have. Um, Yeah, so for me, I I mean, it's very flattering. but, yeah, I don't really think about it that way. I just think you've got to set a data room, information points. Um, to me, it just seems like a logical conclusion that you should be doing it. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's us just try and get on and do it.
1: Maybe this is a good point to talk about your career a little bit. Um, so you currently are in a position, in a leadership position with uh, Red Cross. And as you already mentioned, you are with... Um, Australian Refugee Association, um, and then, but previously to that, you were working with a lot of different, um, like head of departments as an advisor, and 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 so on. I just want to ask you about your experience working with those um, people at the top of organizations, and you've worked with a few. What defines a good leader i guess from your perspective now that you are in a leadership position and you had the opportunity to work with some leaders beforehand
0: yeah it's a great question um it's a common pursuit isn't it for us to try and find i think it's a human pursuit to try and find neat answers to things um i think what i've found ali is um there is no one size fits all with leaders um, I've been really fortunate throughout my career, um, and I mean this in an absolute genuine way because I, I know of uh, others who have not had good leaders to work with. Um, I, For whatever reason, I've been extremely lucky. Uh, every every major juncture of my career, I've had um, leaders that have helped uh, lift me, helped inspire me. But if I was to look at, you know, what are the characteristics that make up that leadership, they're all different. Um, They've all brought very different perspectives. Um, But I suppose the lesson that they have taught me is quite simply that, which is leadership can be anything. Um, It can come in various forms. There are, you know... Um, different ways to lead. Um, But also what they've taught me, um, which is what I think I benefit the most from, is I've kind of looked at all these different leaders and there's things that are absolute strengths in the way that they've led. And then there's things that I probably would do different. Um, And it's the opportunity to learn from them, to be able to pick my own way of of leadership. Um, And having said all of this, I think one of the major qualities of really great leaders I think is actually self-awareness um because we're all human we're all fallible um yes you can you know hone in on certain skills yes you can check in on your own biases um and all of that and um you know and, and practice is is continuous it doesn't stop you know it's a continuous education around leadership um and what's critical to to underpin all of that I think is self-awareness being aware of what your limitations are being aware of what triggers you to take you out of that kind of rational mode into lizard mode um and then being so self-aware to know how do I then get myself out of the lizard mode and back into rational mode all of those things is all about I think self-awareness and and being able to uh control yourself in the way that you need to to help others is really critical uh, i can't remember who it is i think it might be Mahatma Gandhi that had said if you want to change the world change yourself and i think that there's that there's something really true uh, in that statement
1: that seems to be a very common theme uh, that that saying also seems to appear in a lot of different religion textbooks where you say it says if you want to know god know thyself Um, so maybe self-awareness is the answer to maybe many things.
0: (laughs) Maybe. I think, um, well, look, if you think about conflict, don't you think about, and I mean that in the broad sense, you know, in terms of whether it's you know, arguments that we, we have with our mates and then we get over it or, you know, from the other end of the spectrum, what brings about war, um, It's all in human nature, I think, around this um, self-belief. Like, so when you start to, whether it's you as an individual or you as part of a group of individuals, when you start to put yourself above others, um, that's where I think conflict arises. And so if you have that self-awareness, that humility um, around yourself, I think that is key. Uh, so, yeah, Ali, I think that there is something in there.
1: Chris, I, I want to go back to your answer to my very first question. You mentioned something there around the fact that you were used to come back on the weekends and people ask what you do and you you, you were very different to others. And then within your answers, you also said you have a partner And I realized that you are a member of the LGBTQIA plus community because you were already not amongst the common. And now at whatever age you discovered your sexuality, and now you're like, okay, how am I going to deal with this? Tell me about that experience.
0: Yeah. Well, um, that's a really interesting question. Um, I mean, it was hard uh different points in life when I think about the period where I I started to unpack my sexuality that was really hard yeah because you, you you already know that you're part of a minority group and then you're like oh and now I'm even more in a minority group um than I was before um so growing up that was really hard really really hard um you felt more alone i suppose would be the description i would use um it meant i think as well that uh certainly from the sexuality point of view that there was a period of my life where it also meant that i kind of uh guarded myself from my family in terms of um it goes back to this uh, sense of uh, what does success look like. So from a cultural perspective, um, you know, I I come from a Chinese heritage, the culture is quite clear, you know, shaped by Confucianism around what the family unit and how important that is. Uh, I'm the eldest um, in my family and a son, so a sense of duty to carry the family name. And this sense of, well, you know, if you're gay, then you you can't do that, right? You can't have your own children. So um, that's the view that's been taken. And so you, you do feel this sense of, oh, geez, um, well, I might be able to tick the career box for, for my parents um, and maybe that will pay pay, pay, pay back their, um, um, the support that I've received. Um, but geez, I'm going to disappoint them around the sexuality point of view. So that was always on my mind for a very long time. Um, it's when I went to uni that I think I started to be a bit more comfortable with who I was or am, sorry. Um, but it still wasn't easy because society wasn't there yet. Um, and look, it's it's more there now. It certainly could still continue on that journey. Um so, yeah, so it was it, it was challenging. But, again, though, I think, as I mentioned in early on this discussion, it has helped shape me, though, in terms of giving me a level of understanding, which I think is, is something that I'm going to take, you know, throughout my life. Um, I could be in situations which would put me in more further in the minority group, right? Um, If you start thinking about from a health perspective, um, if you start thinking about from a gender perspective, um, there are these intersectional issues that come into play. Um, But equally, you could take the, what I would describe as the Dylan Alcott kind of look on life, right? He doesn't see himself as a person with a disability. He sees himself as a person with different abilities. And... I think that's where the power is. And um, so, yeah, you know, reflecting back, yeah, I didn't realise that as I'm getting older and as I uh, find myself, um, I'm starting to understand the Dylan Olcott look outlook of actually, you're just a person with different abilities. And if you can tap into that, um, and the more we celebrate that as a society, then the better we all are, I think. Um, So,
1: yeah. The question that comes to my mind is that, um, at whatever point you felt comfortable sharing your identity with your with your family, um, how did you feel the moment right before, I'm, I'm assuming you've told your parents, what yes. was the feeling before that moment that you were about to share this with your yeah.
0: parents? Great question. Um... But just for a moment as well, how funny would it be if I'm actually telling them through this? Um, (laughs) No, Um, so uh, it's a bit of a story. Um, I justified it in my head for quite some time that I would not tell my parents until I met someone that was worth telling them about, Um, which is not an uncommon uh, justification, might I add. Now, what reason other people do it uh, is for them to say, but for me, it was because I thought, well, if worst case scenario plays out and it becomes a defining moment where you effectively, and and this would be true for many LGBTIQA plus uh, people, is you risk losing your family and your family network. and. I, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge that that does happen and continues to happen for 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 some as well. I'm in the fortunate camp where I continue to to enjoy a great relationship with my family. But um, so that was my justification: was if if I'm going to risk it, I'm going to risk it for someone that's worthwhile. And if I walk out of there only with that person and no longer a family network, then not that that would be okay, but at least that was better than being alone. Um. And for me, so when I met Slade, um, and we, uh, I don't know how long we, we actually dated for that, I decided to, to make the, the announcement, so to speak. Um, but it played out where I uh, asked, um, I ended up writing a note uh, to my brother, first and foremost, because he's um, seven years younger than me, a bit more of that younger generation. I thought, well, let's start soft, Um, let's see how we go, and then we can, you know, I took a probably very similar approach to my professional work, you know. All right, if you're uncertain about things, rather than trying to tackle the big task, try and find a a smaller way that you could pilot it and see how you go. So that was my brother. Um, And we wrote a message, uh, well, I wrote a message to him, effectively telling him that I um, needed to share with him that I was gay and that um, I had met someone and uh, I would love if we could uh, find time to, to meet um, over breakfast or something like that. And um, the day that I sent this message, uh, I was happening to be shopping for new bedding with Slade. And so I, I, I chickened out, I said, look, just send the message, that's the easiest way, right? So I sent the message and um, went, okay, let's let's go do our thing and, and shop for bedding and we were parked out of I don't know if well being Adelaide those you guys are Adelaideans so you'll know but on Marion Road where like uh, I think it's snooze is the, the um, we were parked there and I come out of the snooze we've got my like arms full of new uh new quilt new new pillows etc We get into the car and you know it's a bit of this huff like squeezing everything in and I remember sitting in the the car with Slade and he was in the driver's seat and I was uh, in the passenger seat and I went, oh, I've got a, I've got a message back from my brother. And we kind of paused and I remember thinking to myself, do I want to read this or do I not? Because even though I've sent the message, right, it's almost like it's not real until I see what the response is. And so what probably was seconds did like such a long time and I, opened the message and I started reading it and uh, immediately uh, I was overwhelmed by the love that my brother showed for me. Um, This absolute zero judgment. Thank you for letting me know. Uh, I love you all the same and extremely proud of you was his message essentially and we started bawling our eyes out and, and Slade was bawling his eyes out i don't even know if i told him what the message said but i think because i was bawling my eyes out he was bawling his eyes out and we're sitting in this car full of you know bedding outside of snooze in <laughs> car, and that was the moment that i told my brother um and so we caught up with for breakfast um and we started talking about um how would we approach this with mum and dad and um as is the ritual uh, that you have, is you have your regular family dinner once a week um, with mum and dad, and up to that point as well, I should say is that Slade Neville came obviously to the the family dinners. Um, And yeah, and and I remember having this dinner and the plan was that I would tell mum and dad over dinner. Uh, Of course, it took a lot of courage to be able to do that uh, in person. And I remember we had got to the end of dinner and I still had not told mum and dad. And um, my brother eventually, thankfully, in hindsight, had the courage to basically just interrupt conversation mid-flow and just said, Chris has got something to tell you. <laughs> and uh, I remember mum looking at me like, oh, what's what's this? You know, this is unusual. There's something um, big about, about this. And that put extra pressure on and then dad who probably as he usually does didn't think much of it and was about to like um go have a shower and then my brother said where are you going dad and he's like oh what and he goes, you need to sit down and listen to like, oh god okay and so there I am with my brother like looking at me going you need to do this now and my parents looking at me with this puzzled look of what what is he about to say and um Again, I I just paused and I remember taking a a breath and there was nothing else to say other than I'm gay. And as soon as those words left my mouth, there was a sense of relief um, immediately, irrespective of their response. I, I did feel like that was the most honest thing I had said to them for many, many years and um, it was really powerful because, I mean, it doesn't undo it, but it it felt like I had lied to them indirectly or directly, right, every time they were asking me about whether I have a girlfriend or what I'm up to on the weekend and those sorts of things, you kind of don't share the full details. Um, So I felt like in those few words, I was able to finally be truthful. Um, And, look, you know, Mum's response was very much uh, um, an interesting one. It was actually a bit funny. Mum said, "Why?" <laughs> Which took me off guard, and um, I didn't have a response. And Adrian, my brother, just went, "Mum, there is no why." And you could, "Oh, of course, of course." And and she just said, "Look, I'm, I'm, we love you. We're proud of you, and and it's okay." Um. Dad took some time to adjust, um, so there was some time there that um, Dad took some time to, to really adjust with that, and that's okay, you know. Um, and over time, you know, they met Slade, um, and then as they say, the rest is history and we get along so well now. Um, and I suppose if there is anything to take out of this is... Um, It does take a lot of courage. It takes a support network. Um, Allies are really important. Um, But hopefully people understand that everyone's journey is very different. My outcome is one of the lucky ones. Not everyone experiences that. And some things can end quite badly uh, for people as well. Um, But, um, you know, so what can we do about it? I think what we can do about it is uh, focus more around being aware of what kind of society are we contributing to. We're all part of it. So every little bit counts. Um, And sometimes it's those little things that makes a huge difference that people don't realise. So, yeah, I'd encourage people to be more mindful um, around what they say or what they assume. Um, I'm glad to say that this day and age. Um, I have. I, I feel really safe to be able to to refer to my partner Slade um, to be able to say he rather than they, or not use any you know, use gender neutral terms, um, and and not have people blink an eye quite often at all anymore around the fact that um, I am in a gay relationship. So, yeah.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Chris. Um, I want you to think about the fact that this could give someone the courage or the bravery to own their identity somewhere.
2: It touched on a really good point that um, I was keen to ask you, um, you know, the gender neutral terms. And it's just, you know, like, is it truly helping, you know, everyone else create a safer space? Um, for people who may not feel as, as courageous as you may be, um, or is it not helping? And if it's not, you know, what can we do to create a safer space? I feel it's such a taboo topic that even when I'm asking, I'm kind of just going, How do I go about this question? But what do we do?
0: I think we do what we can to de escalate the situation. Yeah, what I mean by that is um, it's like an emotionally charged space, right? Um, and the more we can do to de-escalate those emotions, um, and I think it goes to my earlier point, right? You create then an environment for rational conversation versus um, one that's reactive to a situation because it's driven by emotions. Um which might be a somewhat odd answer but what i'm trying to say there is that there are different roles there uh within that so both in terms of those that may have certain levels of prejudices that they're not realizing that they do have or a bias that they have that they're not as aware of um to be not so definitive in their views um and so definitive in their thinking around you know, people and what people should or shouldn't do um, based on their characterization of people versus who they actually are. And I'd say that on the flip side, for those that are allies or seeking to be allies, to also be very conscious that um, whether you're from the community or not, and you're an ally, The courage to be an ally or to speak up is a privilege that not everyone enjoys and because you feel safe and strong enough to speak out, be mindful of the circumstances in which you do that in ways that doesn't actually put people who do not share that level of courage or that level of safety in danger. Um, and so that's why I think it's so important from, from both sides of, of that topic to seek to deescalate it, find the middle ground, create the space to seek understanding, to get to know the person. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the thing is not it? get to know the person, um, don't make assumptions. And it goes the other way as well. Like, I mean, there's so many people in our community that stereotype around, uh what, um, heterosexual um, males or females think or how they act um, that just feeds into this whole uh, machine that has been manufactured by uh, those that were seeking to create division so i think if you remember that and remember where that we're all just um, products of of the environment we're in which was created over generations, then you've got to be careful about that. And I think de-escalation is a good starting point.
1: We have a new ritual that we end our podcast with a question that a previous guest left for you. So, and I'm going to go and play that question for you and you can answer that. Of every person that you've worked with in your professional life, if you could choose one of them to go and start a new venture
0: together, and that new venture can be a business or it can be a a, a mission-led project or whatever it is, who's the one person that you choose to do that with and why? Oh, gosh. Look, the person that comes to my mind is a friend of mine called uh, Kat Dunn. So if she ends up listening to this, um, a shout-out to Kat um so the reason I choose Kat is because uh she's led an amazing career journey herself um that I admire she's pushed boundaries she's been you know CEO of Grameen Australia um with a (laughs) microfinancing initiative um that's international um but the reason I choose Kat is because uh, our values are quite aligned um but, or not but, and her, dip, her her approach to things is much more audacious and a much more of a go-getter and uh, push the boundaries than I am. And I think we would make a good team in that regard because uh, I am probably somewhat more reserved, a bit more um, conservative in my approach. But because we have that values alignment, I think we could do wonderful things and our experiences uh, traverse different sectors um and between us i'd say that we probably almost cover the field um so yeah i would say i would say cat and because we probably both really truly do want to change the world so maybe we could see what what comes out
2: of that who knows um chris uh be wary time just want to say thank you so much for being very um honest very vulnerable with us today and for sharing Um, Your personal story, your family story, and um, I think what an incredible story to demonstrate courage and just, you know, self-awareness and um, identity. We all, you know, go through identity crisis and we all still do and try and find ourselves in this world and, you know, who are we? What impact do we want to make on the world? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, thank you, Amin, uh, for the invitation and Ali uh, as well for, for your opportunity here. I would love it for us to have an opportunity one day, maybe a couple of the your, your past speakers and I could be flipping the table a bit and asking you guys some questions because I think I can sense that there is a lot uh, in your stories too. So who knows, maybe one day. Thank you, Chris.
1: Our stories are the building blocks of who we are. And we hope this episode was the right trigger to reflect on your stories and how they made you who you are. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on whatever platform you are hearing this from. Until the next Open Diary.